You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, a special Hall of Fame edition of the Pipeline Podcast. We're usually uh, looking forward to prospects that we'll be talking about in the future, and we'll do some of that today. Uh, But we're going to look back at Big Poppy, David Ortiz, elected to the Hall of Fame, and uh, an interesting uh, history if you look back at his early days in pro baseball. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, We have a great interview with Dave Jouse, who was uh, scout with the Red Sox when David Ortiz went from the Twins to the Red Sox. He was instrumental in landing Big Poppy. Uh, Jonathan had a chance to talk to him, and we'll have that interview for you. We will then look ahead and talk about some prospects that we'll be talking about, we think, a couple years down the line in 2024. We do this every year. We look ahead a couple years and project who the biggest prospects will be uh, two years from now. And we'll talk about some guys that we might be talking about even further down the road. The uh, 2022 PDP League, Prospect Development Pipeline League, uh, the top 25 participants for this year's league were announced in a special on MLB Network. Jim and Jonathan were part of that uh, that special uh, over the past weekend. So we'll talk about a couple of the players there and we'll wrap up by answering some questions in the mailbag. So Jim and Jonathan, uh, like I said, a little unusual for us to be uh, jumping into the fray on Hall of Fame talk, but um, that is the news uh, as we're recording this on Wednesday, the day after uh the announcement that David Ortiz, first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, Just last week, we talked to Jesse Sanchez with the international signing period beginning. And, uh, you know, as is always the case in the international signing period, some of the big money guys turn out, some of them don't. Some guys who sign for next to nothing pan out, some don't. Uh, Ortiz, one of those guys who signed for next to nothing, uh, this was back in 1992, money not what it was, uh, what it is today then, but still only $3,500 he signed for, uh, just 10 days shy of his 17th birthday, at the time known as David Arias, uh, signed by the Mariners. And uh, Jim, an interesting path for him uh, through the minor leagues. Yeah, it's interesting. If you go back and look at his minor league career, I remember the first time I heard of him, you know, and I was a baseball American at the time. The first time I heard of him was when he was traded in the in the Dave Hollins trade to the Twins. And it's funny if you go back and look at his minor league career. You know, he was a two year two year rookie ball guy, which is usually not a a great sign for you know making the Hall of Fame, uh, especially when you're in, in in the Arizona League at age nineteen. And then, you know, it, it's funny like. I didn't, I mean, I was a baseball American, but there really wasn't a ton of prospect coverage at the time. And I think if there had been, 
like today, like if, if we had the prospect coverage today back when he was coming as a prospect, I think he would have been more heralded because he had 322 in the Midwest League with 18 homers, which is a really tough place to hit. I, I think it's the toughest place to hit in the minors. And then the next year he went out and hit 317 with 31 homers at age 21 and in cameo in Minnesota by the end of the year. But, you know, he was never a top 100 prospect when we were doing th- th- those lists at Baseball America. But it was interesting. I went back, he made three of our three of our uh, top prospect lists in minor leagues. And, uh, you know, he, in the Midwest league, when he broke out in 1996, age 20, he was number six on our list. And I chuckle because the five names ahead of him, uh, I don't even know how many of these guys you'll recognize, but there was Valerio de los Santos was number one, followed by Jeff Leifer, Brian Simmons, Britt Reams, and Larry Barnes. So that was not a very distinguished group that we had ahead of him. We did have him two spots ahead of Josh Booty. Um, and then the next year we had him, he split time between the Florida State League and the Eastern League, and we had him number four in the Florida State League, and that was a, a more representative list. We had Adrian Beltre, number one, Ruben Mateo, number two, and Eric Melton, number three. Lance Berkman was also on that, that list as well. And then up in the Eastern League, he was number six on that list behind Mark Kotze, Derek Gibson, Jarrett Wright, Alex Gonzalez, and Preston Wilson. Um, but I, I do think he was a little – underappreciated at the time because he was essentially a, a bat only guy. I don't know that anybody was saying, Oh, he's a, he's a, he's going to be a DH for most of his career at that point. But you know, it, it's tough with those guys who all they do to hit is hit. They, they, they really have to hit. And I think he was a little underappreciated. Although the interesting thing, looking back at his stats, he had a three to one strikeout to walk ratio his last year in the minor leagues. He was not nearly the disciplined hitter he would become. Um, so, I mean, you could see signs that, you know, there was a slugger in there, but I, I don't think anybody was tabbing him as a hall of famer coming up through the minors. No, I, I, w- I would agree with that. You know, it's been interesting cause I've been uh, slowly digging into sort of his origin story for something I'm going to be writing later on. You know, you mentioned that, that year in the Midwest league with, you know, the Mariners where, you know, he hit 322 and he also drove in 93 runs. He had a 901 ops that year. And, you know, a combination of uh, staff on the Twins, you know, the, the Twins had, a, you know, had an affiliate in the Midwest League. It was Fort Wayne at the time. So the, you know, members of that team staff saw, saw Ortiz, or he was still David Arias then. Um, and then scouts also. So, you know, when, uh, when they were looking to shop Dave Hollins, you know, and it was a good fit because the Mariners needed a, a third baseman, uh, you know, and, and Woody Woodward was trying to, you know, put the final pieces to the, you know, that team that would end up being, you know, a, a very good team in the next couple of years. The, the Twins really kind of looked at 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 Ortiz as, as well. This guy's got some some offensive potential. And then, you know, the next year he went from he started the year in Fort Myers. And went from Fort Myers to the big leagues, um, you know. So he had a huge year in in '97. He drove, you know, hit 31 homers and drove in 124 runs uh, runs across three levels of the minors. Also hit 327 in 15 games in the, in the big leagues, uh, you know. And that started his, his his big league career. You know, I think a lot of attention gets put on what happened. After that, uh, you know, in terms of of him landing with the with the Red Sox, which allowed him 
to become a Hall of Famer. I think if he had stayed with the Twins, we wouldn't be talking about him as a Hall of Famer right now uh, because of how that ballpark was built, the AstroTurf, uh, you know, different things that, you know, sort of hurt his offensive output. Um, you know, Fenway Park was just a perfect, uh, perfect ballpark for him to hit in. A uh, really fun story from that 1996 season when he was in Wisconsin in the Midwest League. Uh, Rob Terranova wrote a story a couple of years ago on MILB.com uh, about a kind of impromptu home run derby. So uh, back then uh, when Ortiz, then Arias, was in the Mariners system, uh, the Mariners used to send their big league team to play against their affiliates in exhibition games. And they had gone to Appleton, Wisconsin in July of that year to play. And uh, there was a huge storm and the field was in terrible shape. And, uh, you know, the the Mariners were not going to send their players out there uh, under those conditions. Uh, Lou Pinello, uh, you know, was, was vehemently against it. But they had all these fans there, you know, all these Mariners fans in the Midwest wanting to see these big leaguers. And so they came up just on the spot with, well, let's let's have a home run derby. Vanilla uh, was amenable to it. So they had Griffey Jr., A-Rod, and at the time the Mariners catcher Dan Wilson as the three competitors for the Mariners. Now, low A ball in the Midwest League, Guys were not hitting the ball out there. They had Arias, who was the obvious choice. And then they had uh, another player, uh, was it Tinoco? Luis Tinoco, who was second on the team in homers. And the pickings were so sparse that their third competitor was the team's hitting coach, Joaquin Contreras. Uh, But apparently, uh, Ortiz just stole the show as uh, how old would he have been 20 years old at the time and you know griffey jr and a rod well well established as stars at that point and uh, he just stole the show that day and i think uh you know those guys were well aware of who he was at that point even though it was years until he actually became a, a household name uh jim you you said that uh you know i think before we came on, you, you said that at some point A-Rod had, had said that he had told the Rangers that they should sign uh, Ortiz when, when he was uh, cut loose. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, you know, everybody has stories with Mike Trout, like, hey, we almost drafted Mike Trout. So I don't know how close it was. But yeah, A-Rod said, I was reading, you know, there's 8 million David Ortiz stories today, and I was reading a few of them, and I forget you read, them I read that one. But, um, but yeah, he said he, he made a... He made a pitch to the to the Rangers at the time that they should sign him, but uh, but was not listened to apparently. Yeah, I mean, it, it took Ortiz quite a while to establish himself, and uh, in large part due to injuries. If you if you look back at his the beginning of his big league career, um, mentioned that he skyrocketed from high A all the way to the big leagues in 1997. Then 1998 had a fractured wrist. 1999 a torn ACL uh, that, that uh, derailed his September call-up. In 2000, another uh, – well, actually, in, in 2000, that was the last time that he played more than 45 games 
in the field in his professional career, played 111 games at first base for Salt Lake. But then in 2001, another fractured wrist, 2002, surgery to remove bone chips from his knee. Uh, so, you know, very difficult to overcome all those injuries. And then DFA'd in December of 2002, and that's where uh, our friend Dave Jouse came into play. And we will take a break, and when we come back, we'll hear from Dave Jouse, who is now uh, senior advisor uh, for the Nationals and player development department, then was uh, Red Sox advanced scout, who had a lot to do with David Ortiz ending up with the Red Sox. We'll take a break and come back with that interview right after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline podcast. Uh, Jonathan Mayo, uh, happy to welcome in a special guest, now a senior advisor, the Washington National, David Jouse. Dave, uh, thank you for, for taking some time out, obviously. Uh, you know, we, we generally talk about prospects on, on this podcast, but uh, everyone is all abuzz, you know, with the uh, with the Hall of Fame talk and, uh, you know, wanted to sort of talk to you uh, because you were an integral part of David Ortiz joining joining the Boston Red Sox. So I guess the, the, the first question uh, and granted, he was no longer a prospect, but he still was you know, younger and an unknown quantity a, a little bit, but what, when did you first know about, about David? Was it, you know, when he got to the big leagues and you were, and you were scouting or did, did you know who he was before then? Uh, well, because the, uh, and first of all, thank you. And thank you for saying I was an integral part. We're, we're all small parts. And the, the, the best thing about all these things is, is players get recognized for what they do both on the field and off the field. And that's David is, is, is great for the industry. He was great for Boston, but he's really good for the entire world's um, baseball industry because he is a spokesperson. Uh, I'm not only carrying the bat, but just walking um, through, through stands, through towns, through cities, through his country in Dominican. And that's where I got to know him both in the Dominican and in when he was with Minnesota being in spring training against him in Fort Myers, when he was in Minnesota in spring training and I was with the Red Sox in, in Fort Myers, we both got to play each other a whole bunch of times, um, got to play each other again when I was coaching during the season when he was with the twins. And then I had an opportunity in 98, 99 to manage in the Dominican against him and that was some kind of right side for Escajito of the infield. It was David Ortiz at first and Rafael Fercal at second. He couldn't play short because Nephi Perez was the shortstop. He was the veteran in that time. So <laughs> Fercal had to break in. Um, and coming over to the Dominican, one of the, the, the interesting things was uh, I showed up in the Dominican and on the bulletin boards 
it wasn't the face of Pedro or Sammy Sosa or anything. It was David Ortiz advertising the local chicken chicken place or the cell phone because his face was was the face of the Dominican down there. And he was the face of the winter ball. And so I had to play against him the whole time. And then in 99, we went to the Caribbean series and we beat him and, and the Escajito team in a nine game championship round that was supposed to be seven, but they extended it to nine because they were making so much money. Um, I was able to take him to Puerto Rico and he was the one that, that hit the walk-off hit. In the, well, it wasn't a walk-off. It was the top of the 13th, but he drove in a run to beat Al Newman's, um, the team from Puerto Rico in the Caribbean series. So I got to know him really well playing against him all those years. And then the, the week he went to Puerto Rico with us and he played for us. Right. Right. Um, it's always fun. Uh, I covered a Caribbean series once and it's always fun how you can pick up players along the way, you know, the Caribbean series. So, so you knew him about as well as you're going to know a player when, you know, when the twins released him, what, what was your role with the Red Sox at, at, at that time? I, I was the advanced scout. I had started the season as the farm director and then moved into uh, advanced scout for Grady Little, and, and the, the team that was run by Grady Little, um, the major league club. And because I had gone from farm director to advanced scout, I was able to go to the Dominican and manage again against David for Lassay. Um, he was with Escajito, um, and uh, right away that that day that he he was um, let go by Minnesota, he and I hit each other. We you know we'd had forged a relationship already, um, and he had forged so many relationships. But uh, and so right away I said, oh my gosh, this is this is some kind of player um, for the Red Sox. There were some things that that went on in Minnesota. He he had to play on turf, and that turf was nasty in Minnesota. It was terrible for his knees. He can't, would come to Escajito and play right away all winter, play first base, and never take a day off. And those games, they, you know, even when it's two to one, they last four and a half hours. There's, there's music in between innings, and, and, and just games go on forever. And, um, and he played all the time. Um, so I, I, I really believe that him, DH, and getting off the turf DH and more getting off the turf more would help his knees. Uh, he always had the rap that he didn't hit lefties. Well, in, in, in the Dominican, you have, you have 14 bullpen guys every day and they're, they're new every day. It's a rotating roster. And yet six, when I didn't have five or six lefties, I felt like I was handcuffed. And so every time he faced a different lefty from the sixth inning to the ninth inning every night and he hit him. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, the Metrodome was, was shorter in right, in, in right field and left center field was, was monstrous. And so he was a dead, he was trying to be a dead pole hitter in Minnesota and being able to be in Fenway with hitters like Reggie Jefferson, Hatterberg, Veritek, when he, you know, switch hitter, of course, uh, Jaron Bragg, Troy O'Leary, and the best of all those guys was Mo Vaughn. And they just, they were such good hitters as left-handed hitters because the wall was so friendly to him. It allowed him to use the middle of the field, which David did when he was in the Dominican, he used the middle of the field. And so all those things said that he, he had an opportunity to be a, a, a really instrumental um, player for us in, in 
getting a championship. Yeah, it's it sounds like uh, you know sort of it, it took a village. I know you were beating the drum for him. I talked to Theo. Uh, he was a player of interest to to begin with. Um, I want you to take me through the 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 now sort of famous workout you put him through um, because I, I guess the one question was why are they releasing him is there something wrong with the guy um, so you you know what you did was not typical for a guy who is already an established major leaguer you know what what was you know what was the discussion with you know your your bosses at the time and how did you decide like all right we we really need to put him through his paces you know it sounds like you were already convinced but Maybe, you know, you needed to help convince some others. Well, yeah, I was already convinced, but I've, I've been wrong on, on, on 350 players also and been right on a few. Um, and that's what scouting is about. So I understood that uh, you, you work people out. And even though myself from the dugout as the opposing manager saw him playing every day, um, there was more affirmation from the, the office in Boston to get here, see how healthy he was. And especially because they had had some players already signed for the role that, that he would ideally be in, not being a, a you know, part-time player, bench player, something along those lines. And so um, because of my, our relationship, and it was just, it wasn't just me, it was me and um, one of my coach, two of my coaches, Nellie Norman and Guadalupe Habalera, um, Jay Alou was the uh, Dominican scouting director at that time. Um, and, you know, his relationship with myself because of the Alou family being so close with me. Um, he was there, Louis Alhawa. I had just gotten to meet. He had just come over um, to the Red Sox from the Marlins. And so all those guys said, well, we're around. We can work it out. And of course, Joust, you ask him. <laughs> and so um, because of my relationship with David, because of um, you know, the ability that um, most all of us coaches have in relation relating to players, I was able to tell David that, hey, this is this is one part of the things that we have to check off. And so and I think it was at 9 a.m. It might have been at 10 a.m., but I think it was at 9 a.m. And he was playing um, somebody at eight o'clock that night in a in a round robin game. But at 9 a.m., he comes out to the field. And it's, you know, it's January in the Dominican. It's already 96 degrees out. And, and at that time, Kiskeya was a really nice stadium for the Dominican, but it's not a really good field. I mean, it's, and, and the groundskeepers are, are, are dragging, hand dragging it for us because I have a good relationship for them, with them. Also the groundskeepers <clears throat> and we're hitting ground balls to me. He doesn't have to hit at that time, but he has to run the bases. He has to take ground balls. He's sweating profusely, and he's, Jossie, what am I doing here? I said, just let's check this box off. Um, and it was, you know, and, and, but the scouts were there in the stands that, you know, Jay and Louie, and there might have been another person there, um, and they're sweating too. It's, it was, a, you know, everybody did their part in their role to be there, and it was something that we could check off. And, 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 and David, you know, as the man he is, you know, sucked it up. Played really good that night, also, and um, it uh, it was a, a small part, but it was an important part. And I understand why Theo and Josh and those guys had to do it, um, because as I told a guy last night on an interview, I, you know, I, 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 we're talking about David it, because of David, 
because there are those 350 or 400 or 500 guys that I recommended to, to be big league players that, that are now, um, you know, working at, uh, you know, uh, car salesmen or teachers or tremendous dads and husbands, but not playing baseball. Right. Um, yeah, I talked to Terry Ryan and, uh, you know, I tried to give him the out, say that it was just a financial decision. And, you know, Terry, he's not going to make an excuse. He just said, I, I just made a mistake. Were you, were you surprised at all that they just out released him? I mean, Terry worked for a very long time trying to find a trading partner, including talking to Theo and the Red Sox to, to try to trade him. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess smartly Theo, you know, Terry told Theo that, well, if I can't find a trading spot from, we're probably just going to release him. So they played the waiting game, but, you know, were you surprised that that, that happened? Um, y- yes. Um, but I've been surprised, you know, I, I was surprised, but I've been surprised by so much more. And then because of being knowing him in my dugout in 99, because being in Boston and seeing, and I, you know, it, there's a comp to Mo Vaughn. Mo Vaughn was some kind of player in Boston. If Mo Vaughn doesn't fall down the steps in Anaheim, um, we could have been having this talk about Mo Vaughn 10 years ago. He was that good a player and that productive a player in Fenway. That also type of teammate, um, two of the, the best teammates and teammates for other for the in, and and industry people were Mo Vaughn and 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 David Ortiz in in Boston, and so um, seeing those things, yes, it it did surprise me, and I love Terry Ryan and and to this day Terry Ryan and and and, and Smith and those guys that were with uh, Minnesota that time. I remember that even before the David Ortiz David Ortiz thing, um, when they were trading Nablau to New York. Uh, they got Christian Guzman and he was playing shortstop with me. And it was a, it was a really good discussion on if they wanted Christian Guzman or D'Angelo Jimenez. And um, so the, the history that we had with Terry um, let's, let's talk about the really good move of getting Christian Guzman, not D'Angelo Jimenez rather than talking about Ortiz. Um, So obviously it's relevant to right now. So yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, but, but yeah, David, um, I I was surprised. And that's the reason he and I connected right away down there in the Dominican the the day afterwards. And he kept connecting with me because yes, there were, there was plenty of reasons why both Terry had to release him. Minnesota had to release him. And also why all sorts of other people, because as much as we look at it now, he became the player because of everybody that impacted him and his work and his abilities. And they weren't where they were supposed to be at that time. Um, and so um, I, uh, I was surprised and he kept, yeah, he kept, he would drive by me because I walked to the ballpark every day. And I walked with my kids to the ballpark every day. We were homeschooling, so they were down in the Dominican. And he would honk in his big car. He'd be yelling out, hey, Chelsea, when are you guys going to sign me? I said, hey, hold on, hold on. See you on Josh Burns. They're going to get it done. Just wait. Henry's, Henry's signing off on something. Um, so it was kind of neat. It's a neat story. Yeah, no, it's great. I want, actually, I wanted to ask about the specific part because I was, I was reading about that, you know, that he, he kind of pulled you over. And there, he said that, you know, there are other teams who are interested in, in signing him. Do you know who, who those teams were? I was 
strictly the manager of Lassay, the advanced scout for the Red Sox that wanted the Red Sox to win a ring, actually for Grady Little. I wonder when the wearing the following year for Grady Little and new David Ortiz could help us doing that. So I had no idea. And I did get information on a, um, a little tidbit. I did get information on what David would sign for. And I passed that on. And if they had signed that, if they had taken that offer that David had told me he would sign for, it would have helped them for four years financially on David also. So it, it hit them worse like two years later when they had to bump it up a little bit more than the three or four years he was asking me at that time. I, I think there are probably no regrets on that end at, no, uh, not at, all. at, at this point. All right. So, so, so no tea to spill on who the other teams that were interested. Uh, yeah. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find out who the, the, you know, the teams that Terry were trying to trade him to. So it sounds like he spoke to just about everybody uh, about that, but uh, you know, Jesse, you've been in this game for a long time and you see so you've hinted about all the guys that you were wrong on and things like that. But um, it, it's pretty clear the pride that you take in your part in this story, especially in this in this in this moment. Can you just sort of talk about uh, how much it means to you that you sort of helped him get to the place he needed to be, not only to turn Boston into a winner, but then to eventually now have his his plaque in Cooperstown. Um, the, the, and it's interesting. The pride I have is that I, I, I love, I love players and the players abilities as a player and as a man um, that then get recognized with achievements, rings, hall of fame, um, being good dads, being good husbands, being, um, good friends being, you know, all these things. Uh, I, that's, that's what I love. Um, and, and David, I remember Felipe always used the term the the man is better than the player when he was evaluating a person that evaluating a player and David was always a better man than a player. Um, and one of those times in, in one of those, uh, when we were getting ready for one of the playoff series and I brought in the advanced report and I given it to the whole staff. And then we had a dinner and I was leaving right after the dinner. I didn't even, I had to take a flight out to cover the next series. I was way in the background. Everybody else is dressed in their suits and I'm, I got my gym shoes on so I can run through the airport and get to the, a flight. Um, sure enough, David comes in and, and, and brings me all the way up from the, far back I was back with the bullpen catcher and uh, you know maybe some of the like the triple-a manager who was up at that time something like that he brings me up to the front table with John Henry and Lucchino and Theo and Burns and all these guys and says you know he puts his hand his big paw on my head and says yeah this is one of the guys that got me here right here and that's you know that's that it warms my heart that that's the way he um he uh feels about people and I'm one of those people. It's say that he's a better man. I mean, he's a pretty good player. So um, that's, yes, uh, that's really saying man. something. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, a lot of people like to take a little credit um, and rightfully so. You know, I know that Pedro Martinez definitely played salesman, probably in both directions, selling the Red Sox to, to, to David and, and vice yeah. versa. You know, 
were you guys like a tag team at a certain point in time? Yeah. Like, did you know that Pedro was kind of leaning on, on David also? If we start talking about Pedro stories, that goes way back even more. <laughs> I was advanced scout for the Expos when Tim Johnson and myself were, I, heck, I just got a message from Dan Duquette and uh, he, you know, he was instrumental in getting Pedro from the Dodgers to the Expos. And he really relied on Tim Johnson and myself. And so the relationship that I forged with, with Pedro through Dan, through Felipe Alou, um, did, did run through and continues to run through. He's, he's our boys, all three of our sons who are in the game of baseball now, their favorite player always was Pedro. They were all three pitchers. And um, the youngest one even used a glove for Pedro when, um, when he was in high school and even start college. Um, so Pedro and I are, are close. I can't say we tag teamed him at all, but it, I knew what he was doing because he was a lot more impactful with maybe John Henry and Larry Lucchino than David Jouse was. I threw that in just so you, we, we could you know, name drop another Hall of Famer that you that you uh, came in contact with for you. So uh, you're what a spe another special man, and then and it's the men that that are different. I'm I, I'm in this game and been blessed to be in this game because of the men. And people, because it's 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 not just men, but man, that um that I've been able to be blessed to be with. All right, Dave. I mean, I think we could probably talk for for hours. Uh, we'll save that for maybe for another episode. But uh, we appreciate the time, and we'll be right back with uh, more of the MLB Pipeline podcast when we come back. Thank you, Jonathan. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline podcast. Big thanks to Dave Joust for taking the time to join us today. That was a very enjoyable look back at a young David Ortiz. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. Now we're going to turn our attention to the future, a couple years into the future. Uh, last week, we, uh, we did a story where we looked back at how we had looked forward in two, 2020 looked forward to prospects we'd be talking about in 2022, kind of determined how right or wrong we were in looking at uh, a prospect for each team that would be generating a lot of buzz right around this time. And we're going to do the same thing now for 2024. We're going to look ahead and see who those prospects will be. Uh, Jim and Jonathan, you've each picked a player, a couple of players each, uh, from a couple of your teams that you think will be making noise around this time in two years. Jonathan, uh, you, you, you're you only going to pick guys with the same last name as you? Yes, that's it. It's All right. somewhat limited. Well, let's hear him. Um, well, not both of my guys for this. No, that's true. That's true Diego Jonathan. Mayo. Diego. Mayo Diego. is his mother's name, so he's Diego <laughs> Mayo. <laughs> he's going to change it. Exactly. He's going to change it in a few years, like David Arias. 
Um, yeah, so Kobe Mayo, my nephew. Um, no, he's not actually related, uh, but uh, I will continue to say that. Uh, from the Orioles, uh, you know, is, is an interesting guy because we didn't get a chance to see him as much as we may have liked in 2021. Uh, he had some injury issues, um, but he has tremendous uh, raw power. Uh, did get to some of it in the time he played. He only played in 26 games last year, uh, but managed to spend a, a good amount of time, uh, most of that time in, um, I guess, 20, I'm sorry, 27 games total. But he, he spent a good amount of that time in uh, full season ball where he slugged 547. Um, you know, there's some swing and miss there. He's big and strong, uh, you know, right-handed hitter, uh, you know, maybe an Austin Riley type, um, you know, Troy Glouse is another comp we've been getting, but like the power is what really plays. He's got a really strong arm. Uh, I think he'll have work to do to stay at third just cause he's so big, but uh, I'm, I'm excited to see him have a healthy full season. Uh, he's still super young, uh, you know, he'll be 20 for all of the 2022 season. So I think in a couple of years now, he may be one of the better power hitters in the minor leagues. Am I going straight back to back with my other, non my non Mayo category? Snake draft, Jim, or are we, uh, well, we're not drafting either way. I thought, I thought okay. you, you set him up to talk about both his we, guys. So I was, we did. I was... I'll, I'll keep going then. Um, the, the other guy I, I think was kind of interesting and, I may, you know, this may be pushing it because uh, this is a guy who just signed in the, you know, with the start of the international signing period a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's noteworthy because uh, he was signed by the Braves. And, you know, as has been well documented, the Braves are kind of on the sideline for a, a good length of time following the uh you know, the, the penalties that they, uh, for, for international signing infractions. So this is the first year that they've been all in with their full bonus pool. And they went out and signed Diego Benitez, the Venezuelan shortstop to, uh, a bonus of two and a half million dollars. He was number 10 on our international prospects list, our top 50 put together by Jesse Sanchez. Um, he's gotten some Manny Machado comps. Uh, it's got really good bat speed, Good power, uh, pretty good overall approach, but you know the discipline will have to come. We'll see, you know, whether he you know stays at shortstop. It's so who knows, but he's got good hands and he's you know, he runs well and a strong arm. So you give him every chance to to be at at short, you know, and, and people aren't afraid of of bigger shortstops at this point anyway. Uh, but uh, a lot of offensive upside there. Will he be like you know a, a high level elite prospect in twenty twenty four? Maybe, you know, if it's 2025, then uh, we can say we were ahead of the curve. All right, Jim, no calluses out there for you to choose from. No, none that we know of. But, uh, yeah, I went with uh, Angel Martinez of the Indians as one of my two guys. And it, it, I feel like I've been writing about him. He's been on our Indians list for a couple of years, and he's still just 19. He will actually turn 20 tomorrow. Um, and, and he's been a favorite in the Indians organization for a while. Signed in 2018 out of the Dominican. He's the son of former big league catcher Sandy Martinez. And I know it's a cliche, but it seems like all these guys who have, 
you know, dads who played in the big leagues or coached or whatever, you know, grow up around the game. They have a high baseball IQ, but Angel Martinez has a high baseball IQ. Like he's, you know, probably only an average to solid runner, but he, but he plays quicker than that at shortstop. He's got a solid arm. He gets rid of the ball. He's got that great internal clock. He's a switch hitter. He's got an advanced approach. You know, I think he's going to hit for average. I don't think he's going to be a big slugger, but I think he can be a 12 to 15 home run guy, steal a few bases. Um, he, he's part of that never ending pipeline of middle infielders that the Guardians have. I, I think on our current list, we've got one, two, three, four, I think five in, infielders are in the, the Guardians top 10 and they might be 15 of their top 30. So they're they're loaded. Angel Martinez is another one along those lines. And then for the, the Rangers the guy I wanted to spotlight was Evan Carter, who was the, you know, one of the bigger surprises in the 2020 draft wasn't really on my radar at all as a Tennessee high schooler. And he went in the second round and signed for $1.25 million. And at the time, you know, you know, I, I, I went back and did some, some follow-up after the Rangers drafted him and, and, and talked to all the area guys I talked to in Tennessee. And a couple of them had him on their radar most teams didn't. He was more of a guy they would have tried to go see that spring had they had time, and, and there really wasn't much of a high school season. And, and, you know, the Rangers, you know, were on him more than anybody. They'd done a lot of work. They felt like they had to take him that high to get him away from a commitment to Duke. And, and they really emphasized, look, we think this guy's got five-tool potential. Um, and he does have really interesting tools. But I, I think what really stood out in his pro debut this year was his his aptitude and polish for a high school kid. Now, he, he had a stress fracture in his back the end of the season earlier, but he was really controlling the strike zone very well, um, you know, used the whole field. Um, you know, he, he, very exciting for the Rangers that it wasn't just, okay, here's some raw tools, but this guy could develop even quicker than they think. You know, they, and then they, they like the intangibles too. You know, the intelligence, he's got great instincts, He's he's got tremendous makeup. Um, I think he was valedictorian of his high school class. Um, so there's, there's a lot to like about Evan Carter. And, and it looks like, you know, it, it's early. I mean, he's only played 32 games in pro ball. But for a guy who, who a lot of teams were surprised when he went in the second round, uh, he's really raised his profile. Not only will we be talking about these guys in 2024, but Jim promises to get the Cleveland organization team name right by then also. I think I said Guardians at one point, but I probably did throw You did. You, self- yes, you I self-corrected, but I still yes. have teasing. It's early. Yeah. I, I think that's a good uh, prediction for 2024. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, we will, uh, in addition to those four prospects, we will have uh, one prospect for each team that uh, will be – we look forward to talking about in 2024 when they're making buzz. That story will be up on MLB.com slash pipeline uh, a little later this week. And to clarify one thing, Jason, for, for added degree of difficulty, we're not picking players who are currently on the top 100 prospects list. That's right. I meant to There are you, some uh, who have 2024 ETA, rules. like Jason Dominguez for the Yankees, obviously, but we're, we're, we're not picking. If they're on the top 100, we're deeming that too obvious a choice. There we go. Okay, so let's look ahead perhaps even a little bit further down the road. Uh, You guys were on uh, MLB Network special uh, this past week uh, on the 2022 PDP League participants. So these are 2023 draft prospects, high school draft prospects. The PDP League uh, will be uh, taking place later this summer. And... 
they have invited 25 of the top high school prospects from the 2023 draft class to participate in that league, which has already in its early stages proven to be, uh, you know, host to uh, some of the, almost all of the really elite high school prospects across the country. Uh, 25 really interesting kids that uh, we'll be hearing about uh, in next year's draft class. For now, for our purposes here on the podcast, why don't you guys tell us about uh, what I guess are the consensus top hitting and pitching prospects in that class. Yeah, and, and they'll invite more players too. I think they'll be 90-something when all is said and done. They'll split them into four teams and they'll do some training and play some games. I think, I want to say the dates are June 29th through July 5th. Um, it'll be before the draft this year. About a, It'll end about a week before the draft. But but as of now, the, the consensus number one high school prospect in, in the country for 2023 is Max Clark, who's from Franklin, Indiana. He's committed to Vanderbilt, but it looks like he's going to go very high in the draft and not make it to Nashville. And I mean, I don't know if there's really a hole in his game right now. I, I think he's the most advanced hitter in that 2023 class. He's got a mature approach. He's got a lot of hard contact. The power's developing. I, I think we're talking about a 20 to 25 home run guy when all is said and done. He's run the 60 and sub 6.5 seconds, so he's a plus-plus runner. He covers a ton of ground center field. He has a, a solid-to-plus arm out there, which is unusual for a center fielder. He's up to 92 on the mound as a left-handed pitcher, um, even though he's a hitter all the way. He, he's kind of like a, a speedier version of Jared Kelnick at the same stages of their career. So he, he really, really intrigues me. Um, and, you know, as of now, I mean, look, a lot can change between now and July, 2023, but Max Clark's a top high school player in the country and, and would be a candidate to go number one overall. You know, it's interesting that like the two top guys are from, you know, cold weather states, Clark from Indiana. Uh, right now, the, I don't know, consensus may be pushing it a, a little bit, but Thomas White, who's from Massachusetts, a lot of people think has a chance to be the best high school arm. Uh, and, and if you do a little research into history, the history of high school arms from Massachusetts, you know, or even from New England overall, not a particularly rich history, uh, but he does check off a lot of boxes. He's left-handed. He's six foot five. He's already at touching 95, uh, can spin a breaking ball, has shown some feel for a changeup. Uh, the one thing that uh, he he hasn't done is he hasn't really been seen a lot uh, and hasn't thrown a ton. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a good thing given that, uh, you know, these, these are guys that are starting their junior year of high school. Uh, we were talking off the air that, you know, because of the pandemic, uh, these are players who've really only played one year of high school baseball. Uh, so I, I think the gloves are going to start to come off. You'll see them, uh, you know, more of the showcase, uh, events, uh, especially you know, this one, uh, that in the PDP league and, and that will put him even further on the map. He pitched at a showcase at Fenway park in the fall and was just absolutely lights out. I think he touched the 96 there, uh, you know, briefer look. Uh, so there's a lot to like. I think there's just you know, question marks because he hasn't been seen in, in too many events, you know, to, to date. But I think anytime you have a, a lefty who 
is projectable and already has now velocity uh, with ease. There's not a lot of effort in his delivery. Uh, people are, are going to be very, very excited. And Jim, you were right. The PDP League will run from June 29th to July 6th this year. Uh, in addition to just the league itself and the great experience that that provides these players. Uh, additionally, it serves as the primary identification series for USA Baseball's 18U national team. Uh, so approximately 40 players will earn an invitation uh, to those team trials to buy for a spot on the final roster. And then that team will compete in the World Baseball Softball Confederation U18 Baseball World Cup, which is going to be held in Bradenton and Sarasota this year. Uh, that's uh, going to run from September 9th through the 18th. And it'll probably be, I mean, I would suspect because it's now going to be before the draft this year, they'll also use it again as the feeder program for the high school futures game that they held the weekend of the futures game in the draft, um, which will be Dodger Stadium next year. So we'll probably see a lot of those guys in L.A. a couple days before the draft. Another not so bad perk for them. All right. Uh, let us wrap this up by answering some questions in the mailbag. Had a, a pretty good uh, selection of questions to choose from this week. We will start with this one from Kevin Carpenter, who we, we should answer this question as, if for no other reason for his Twitter handle of Church Pew Pew Pew. Kevin asks, which college baseball players ranked outside the top 100 draft prospects has a chance to finish in the top 30 with a strong year, a la Trevor Larnick or uh, Jonathan India in 2018? I'm rooting for Colby Halter and Trey Faltine. You were rooting well, for them, Jason? Or no, no, that's the, that's all. Okay, I didn't know if you were rooting for those guys in particular. No, that's I was all really hoping that you're you a big would fan of the Longhorns, right? And the Yankees. I, I was I was hoping that you would uh, have really gotten into reading his Twitter handle. Yeah, and just you, done you like a to... church pew 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 like that. That would have been better. I left it for you. Okay, thank you. Um, so I'm gonna Colby Halter is an interesting one. I think he's one of these like good baseball player types uh, at at the University of Florida, but I'm actually going to um, pick a a different Florida Gator, and that's Josh Rivera. Um, mostly because he has the chance to stick at shortstop. Um, he, he's gotten in an uh, excellent shape. Um, scouts are very impressed in meetings with him. Uh, may, you know, even if he moves to third, eventually, you know, he, he can really hit. Um, so, uh, even if he slides over, it might fit the profile well there. So I think, you know, since you mentioned Jonathan India, uh, we'll stick with a Florida Gator. But rather than Colby Halter, I'm going to say uh, Josh Rivera uh, because I think Halter may profile more as a like a super utility guy when all of a sudden done. Um, maybe he's a second baseman. Rivera with the chance to to play on the left side of the infield. I'll give him I'll give him the edge there. I like the question. It's a tough one because if we actually felt that any of these guys had a good chance to be a first-round pick, they would have made the top 100. Um, the top two high school guys who missed for me 
where a pair of outfielders, Amarian Boyd from Mississippi and Tommy Speck from Iowa. He didn't ask about like high school guys. What are you doing? I thought he said, well, you know, he said college baseball players. I was going to say I was, I was sticking players and I was going to go college. So I had I'm some not, high school guys. I'm not reading the question. Bonus. Bonus. No. Yeah, no, no, no. What I was going to say is I'm not going with those guys because I was going to say if it was just players, I think the question is better suited for a college player because the high school guys are more raw and I don't, and I think that works up against them going in the first round. So I was circling back to a college player, okay. even though my listening skills are not. I'll help uh, focus you a little bit. Well, we're not, we're not very good there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but um, I'm going to go with TJ McCants of Ole Miss, who's an outfielder, had a really nice freshman year, uh, super toolsy. His brother was a high pick last year. And you do get some mixed reports on him. I mean, there's some guys who really like him. They like the athleticism, the back-to-ball skills. They think he's going to stick in center field. They think there's some projectable power. He can really run. You know, you, the, the reason he didn't quite make our list is there's other guys who worry a little bit about the bat and the strike zone discipline and the power um, and all that. But I, I do think if it comes together and he did exceed expectations last year, if he could continue to develop like that, I could see TJ McCants as a – as a toolsy guy who plays up the middle, he's played some infield. I don't think he can really play second base, but as a toolsy guy, he plays up the middle. He's going to be in the SEC facing, you know, the best competition in the country. If he comes out and has a really good year, I could see TJ McCants going in the first round. It's funny, by the way, because I first picked out a high school player and then reread the question and realized that uh, that's what they were looking for. All right, let's move on to a question that, Hopefully, will be less confusing for the two of you. This is from Aaron Bresick, B-R-E-C-E-K, Bresick, Bresick, at Bresick24. Which prospect or prospects outside of the top 100 do you see moving up the list the most throughout the season and going into next year? So this is the top 100 prospects uh, overall, um, not the draft prospects list. So a similar question with a different list. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Marlins fans will be like, this guy should be on your top 100 already, and he's not. He will be on the new top 100, but but I'll go with I'll go with Yuri Perez of the Marlins. You know, we, we seems like we've talked about him a few times on the podcast because he's just so interesting, but he's, you know, a guy who's gotten a lot bigger and a lot better since the Marlins signed him a couple of years ago out of the Dominican Republic. He's now six foot eight, 200, a lot of room to add more strength, but his fastball's gone from the mid eighties when the Marlins first saw him to now it's 93, 96 and topping out at 98. And there's, there's room to add more velocity, but, but even better than that, just the shape of his fastball and the running life up in the strike zone and the induced vertical break. I mean, that might be a 70 or 80 pitch when all is said and done. And he's, He's got a really nice changeup that's going to be a plus pitch, mid-80s, fade and tumble. Um, he's got an upper 70s curveball that he lands for strikes. It could get a little sharper. That might be a plus pitch. And even though he's just this big gangly guy, he's got tremendous body control. He throws strikes, really mature for his age. He got to high A last year as an 18-year-old. Um and, you know, had we had a couple more guys graduate, he was in a group of guys we're talking about adding to the list at the end of the season. But I, I think, you know, I think Yuri Perez is going to shoot up the top 100. And I, I don't know if he wants this honor because it seems like whoever we rank is the best pitching prospect in baseball. Like there's the Forrest Whitley's and Mackenzie Gores of the world have fallen on hard times. Uh, I think Nate Pearson was our guy last year and he got hurt. But I think a year from now, Yuri Perez might be in the discussion for the best pitching prospect in, in baseball if he continues to develop like he has in his first year in, in the minor leagues. 
I'm going to go the position player route uh, on this one. I'm going to take uh, Ellie De La Cruz of the Reds. Um, nice. It was uh, you know a guy who kind of almost came out of nowhere, which you know which is is rare. Did not sign for a lot of money. Got sixty five thousand uh, dollars back in July of 2018. Was fine during the Dominican Summer League in in 2019, but certainly not anything that you know made people sit up and take notice and you know people put up some pretty gaudy numbers in the dsl <laughs> but then he came to the united states and i remember talking to the reds uh, about him i you know i think i he was an addition when someone graduated last year uh because basically right out of the gate in spring training and then in the arizona complex league he, he was clearly just too good um hit, hit for average and for power and they couldn't promote him fast enough. And he made it up to full season ball uh, to to finish off his United States debut. And he can do a lot of things really, really well. Um, ton of bat speed. He's a really good athlete. He's gotten stronger. He's a switch hitter. Um, you know, he made strides in, in, in his approach. So I think he's going to get better at that. Not you know, some uncommon for a really young player. Uh, like he may be a plus hitter with plus power when all is said and done. Uh, he thinks of himself as a big league shortstop. He has the arm and defensive actions to to do it. He's played some third. They could run him out in center field because of his plus speed. Though, so, you know, obviously he's got a long way to go and only to prove it as he, you know, moves up the ladder. But, you know, this is a guy who even when talking to scouts from other teams, people are very excited about what he did last year. All right. Thanks very much, Aaron, for that question. And thank you, Kevin, for yours as well. And again, thanks very much to Dave Joust for joining us on this episode of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. That's going to do it for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.